pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege of being in your word and journeying with Paul as he encounters various challenges. He always meets it, Lord, in your promise, in the certainty of your call to him. But he, uh, he runs that race um, in the footsteps of you who ran the race before him. And so, Lord, do the same for us. Lead us and open up your word to our understanding that it might grow us closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. I was chewing a cookie. Will God ignore my prayer? What? I was chewing a cookie. Will God ignore my prayer? No. He's, he's, he's <laughs> you got, got me right by it. This is what we're doing. New page, if you didn't get it. So uh, we're moved on here. Now we're at third miss missionary journey. And so we're kind of coming through these this probably this month and next and we should work our way through the end of it because we're not going to spend week after week on the letters. I'm giving you material that helps summarize them and give you some idea, but I wanted to put them in the historical context. So far, we've been through the first missionary journey, second, and then, and then after that first missionary journey and before the second, we have the Jerusalem Council, big, big blowout, how Jewish do you have to be to be Christian, and then the second missionary journey where Paul goes, and it's during that time he establishes these churches that then run into some challenges. So the first letters he writes are the church to Thessalonica. It's in Greece, right? So Thessalonica, and he writes those first two. That's how far we've gone. So he's on the second missionary journey. Now he's made his way back. And then now he has promised, he has said, I want to go to Ephesus. Hasn't been there. But there's a group of Christians, followers of the way, Christians there. So now he determines to visit uh, the church in Ephesus. <coughs> Ephesus becomes one of the huge, significant churches uh, of the early church in the first several centuries. So the heartbeat of Christianity, Jerusalem starts to fade away, even Antioch a little bit, but it maintains Alexandria becomes a huge center of Christianity. Okay, Alexandria... And then Nicaea, Constantinople, that, that area. And then, of course, Rome establishes as a great center of Christianity. Um, and then you have Ephesus. And so Ephesus is a great big one. When John finally gets to writing, he's writing essentially from his home base, the Apostle John, the disciple John. He's essentially writing his home church is Ephesus. And I've told you this before. He dies, he's the only one who dies of old age of the disciples that we know of. All the others, tradition and, um, and, and scripture and history tell us that they died uh, martyred for their faith. Uh, John also was persecuted. He was in exile on the island of uh, Patmos, but his home church is Ephesus. And they, in late in his life, they would haul him in on a, on a litter, you know, and they would, as he became, because he, he was in his 90s, we think he may have been even as much as a century old when he finally <coughs> passes away. Um, but, um, but anyway, and he, he was constant presence in that church in Ephesus. So that's where we're, we're headed now. Paul is headed to Ephesus, going to be there for a while. He's going to make it his home base. So he's there for over two years, 27 months. He, he's there. Hey, you guys, pick up a page over there so you can track along with what I'm doing. Are you good? Is that all right? That's great. Cool. So, um, Elaine. Yeah, I was just wondering, did, did Paul write the letters like, you know, first and second Thessalonians and Ephesians from when he was doing these visits? Is that when those letters would have been written? Um, yeah, so in the uh, in the second one, here, let me steal your page here because I don't have that in front of me. Okay, so second missionary journey. 
Paul writes, so 1 Thessalonians and 2 are very interesting. That Paul, so uh, Paul does, uh, I'll give you my, my basic map again. And then, um, let's see, Turkey, there's Greece. Okay, so here's Greece. Achaia, they call it. And then here you have Philippi. Here you have Thessalonica. Here you have Corinth. Here you have Athens. Here's Ephesus. Here's Paul's hometown, Tarsus. Here's the missionary center, Antioch. Sea of Galilee, Dead Sea. Here's Jerusalem. Head of the church, right? Center of the church here. Here's Egypt, Alexandria. <coughs> is here. Okay. So, and then you have, right, this is the... Uh, so this is Cyprus. Okay, so here's churches here too. Um... So what Paul does in the second missionary journey is going this way, wants to go there. Remember, blocked, heads this way, so Europe gets the gospel. So the first missionary journey is here, and this is Galatia. Big deal because of that letter and the controversy in Jerusalem, on the Council of Jerusalem. First, first missionary journey is Asia. Second missionary journey expands to Europe. Okay? Third missionary journey sets the stage for it getting to Rome. Doesn't get to Rome until Paul is arrested. I mean, the gospel does, but Paul doesn't. The gospel well predates Paul. Priscilla and Aquila, remember? Priscilla and Aquila were Christians, followers of Christ, living in Rome, were expelled by Claudius. That's where they then meet Paul here in Greece. And so when Paul, so Paul is going this way, second missionary journey. He gets to Corinth, establishing the church there, and there's a mess going on here. So within several months, he writes two letters. They're worried about people are dying. We don't see them rising from the dead. You talked about that. Paul goes, wait, you misunderstood me. Let me be clear. Um, and then they even confuse that message. And then he says, let me be even more clear. So it's 1 Corinthians with more explanation in 1 Thessalonians. More explanation on Second Thessalonians. Both of them are brief, pretty brief letters. First Thessalonians a little longer. Then he heads back, right? So he heads back, promising to come back here to Ephesus. Third missionary journey is overland. Here's your map in front of you. You can see the third one. So Antioch, there to the far right, starts there, heads through the interior. He's visiting churches from the first missionary journey. He makes his way to Ephesus, and that's where he lands for a significant amount of time. So, to answer your question, yes, he goes to these places, founds these churches, and then things go, think, things kind of squirrel, just like anywhere. Um, he's, remember, these guys are all new at this. They're really new at this. How do we live as a Christian body? How do you live with the tremendous amount of freedom Christ has given us by fulfilling the law, but at the same time, how do we live honoring God, not disregarding things, see? So how do we live this way? And especially as the church is constantly getting this influx of Gentiles, many of them pagans, some of them slaves, 
How do you interact? They have people from the ruling council, the city clerk, the synagogue ruler, and slaves. How does that work? Because in Roman society, they had it figured out. Slaves didn't interact with these people. These people didn't interact with these people. So they had a caste system. And Christianity blows that all away. You remember Paul's letter to the Galatians? There's neither slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, male nor female. We are all one in Christ. So yes, this is how they arise. They arise because word gets to him. There's an issue. He then addresses the issue. Our guess is there are, he probably wrote dozens and dozens of letters. But what's neat about this is some of those letters are lost to us. And just from a historical standpoint, how cool would that be? But would they be God's word? They're not God's word because Paul wrote them. Right? You with me here? Yes. They're God's word because God intended for that to be a word for his people for all time. That's, that's the difference. And so there may be, I mean, even John says it in, his, in the gospel. He writes, Jesus did many, many, many other things that were not recorded in, these, in this book. But these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is Christ and that by believing you have life in his name. So, those, so, so yes, they, he addresses specific issues. So are you saying that survival of those letters was a predestined thing? Predestined. We well, believe God had that well in hand. Okay. Yeah, we believe God, God preserves, faithfully preserves his word. It's, it's like when I teach my life in Christ class, I just went through it this last week. It's so funny, you guys. You're trying, I spend one week, one session, and I, it's like my longest one. I go like an hour and 20 minutes, and I apologize to people. I have that long to share the authority and, of Scripture. <laughs> I mean, really, it's, it's ludicrous when you stop to think of it, because the amount of... And, and here, I'll just say it this way briefly for you. It's, a stun, it's stunning to know that what you hold in your hands, I cannot tell you that that is God's word. What I am telling you is, we have faithful manuscript transmission that dates back to the first century. Faithful. Absolutely, we know it's accurate. Absolutely. And it's because we have thousands upon thousands of manuscripts that we can compare, that we can date back all the way to the time of eyewitnesses. It, the, just, so like, again, it, did Jesus actually walk on? I don't know. I'm telling you what they recorded for us was faithfully recorded. Nobody made that up. I mean, at least in the sense of no one after a copy said, oh, this isn't cool enough. Like, you know, Jesus is riding across the boat in the storm. We should add to it that he got up and said, be still. Yeah. What's recorded there, we can date all the way back to eyewitness times. So that's the cool thing about, about that. So, we so Rufus, is a good question. We do, at least our tradition, absolutely believes that what you hold in your hand, God intended for all people of faith to have that faithfully transmitted to them. That, that we have that because of God's intention. We do not believe God miraculously put pen to paper and that it appeared miraculously on golden plates. We do not believe that men uh, went into a trance and their hands moved robotically. People moved by the Holy Spirit. So it contains the human knowledge that we have, the limitations of some human knowledge, that we have, 
So for instance, much of the scripture is recorded to us at what I call a naked eye account. Right? To the, to the naked eye. Like, we, like for instance, I use this illustration all the time. Every night, the weatherman says the sun rose at 6.50 a.m. and set at 8.35. And nobody calls the station in protest. <laughs> we get what he means. Right? It looks like the sun rises and sets. <laughs> Nobody protests that, don't you know, didn't you go to school? <laughs> so, so much of scripture really does have a naked eye count because John is absolutely right. These things are written so that you might believe. Anyway, that's more the answer than you wanted, I'm sure. So this one, so now, third missionary journey, you can see how he tracks. He goes to the interior here of this and lands in Ephesus 27 months. While he's in Ephesus, now see the proximity, Corinth to Ephesus is just right across. Tremendous trading centers. This tremendous amount of commerce happens right in this pond here, the Aegean Sea. It's a significant sea, but I mean, it's protected. Lot, tons and tons of trading. So there's constant communication and commerce happening between these. Paul begins to get word, we got some problems. And so Paul writes one of the, by far, the most significant letters on the church, how to be the church. There's huge issues in 1 Corinthians, everything from the resurrection, sexual morality, husbands and wives, um, generosity, that's even more in 2 Corinthians, to be honest, stewardship and things like that, but the Lord's Supper, uh, propriety and worship, you know, should women wear many dresses to church? You know, should men have, be wearing jewelry or whatever? If, if we put it in modern context, should men be wearing hats in church? Should women wear many dresses? I mean, that's how we might say it today. They say it differently. Should women have their hair cut or should they keep it long? And there's reasons why Paul talks about that. Modesty, reverence, that kind of thing. So all of those issues begin, legal issues. They're suing each other in the church. And so Paul addresses that. So there's all kinds of things. So as issues arise in the church, Paul addresses it. We do believe that, Paul, that, that, that letter... And here's one of the reasons why. When it went to Corinth, yes, it was addressed to Corinth, but that letter was so meaningful, so practical, so helpful, we believe that God intended for the whole church to have it. Now, I am absolutely convinced Paul probably wrote a letter to Derby. We don't have that letter. He may have been addressing a very specific uh, fight that two people were having. <laughs> You know, and he addresses it real specifically. That didn't apply to the whole church, but these do. That's why we have them. First Corinthians. Now we're getting into the biggies. First Corinthians, Second Corinthians, Romans, Galatians. We get those four are just stride across the scene and really um, create New Testament church theology for us. The Gospels, the recording of Christ's life, his work on the cross and his resurrection. Give us the absolute heartbeat and foundation. We have nothing without it. But then the next question is, how now do we live as the people of God? How does the church function? What's its purpose? How do we do it? Because we're still sinners, and we still wrestle with sin. So how do these redeemed sinners make a go of it? And we've all been trying to figure that out. And so, anyway, fair enough? More than you wanted. Way more. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So anyway, here we go. Let's look at third missionary journey. We can open up our Bibles to Acts chapter uh, 18. Here, I'm going to do it. Everybody good? We've got a whole stack of them. Pastor, can you help me, Jason? 
Oh, sure. Let's just get, if anyone needs one, anyone need one? Yes, Brad, this, go. This might be irrelevant, but did you say, did you say it took him 27 months to get to Ephesus? No, 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 he's there for 27 months. Is, is there a time frame that, 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 uh, how long it takes him to How long it takes him? So much of it depends, Brad. Yeah, it's a matter of weeks or a month or two. That far? Oh, yeah. That far? Oh, yeah. These, I'll tell you what, the, what's called the Pax Romana, this is a huge historical thing. In fact, Manny, Aaron has, Aaron has a great lecture on this with the high school kids. I sat in it when I observed him. It was, it's really good. But one of the elements of well, how does the gospel spread so effectively, so quickly, is that it's ironic, right, that the Romans crucify Christ, right, become the agents of his execution, but the peace which they have implanted throughout this whole region, I mean, their peace stretches from Persia through all of North Africa to Britain. I mean, they're, I mean, they don't have Germany in that. That's still savages, right? But they're getting up into Gaul, right, France. Yeah, so because of the peace of Rome, commerce, communication, you could get from Jerusalem all the way to Rome within 30 days. You could get there within 30 days. When Paul travels from Jerusalem to Tarsus, it appears that it takes like 10, 10 days. Even at the birth of Christ, to travel from here to here, right? This is 70 miles. These miles are not, this is not the United States. Okay? This is 70 miles, 75 miles from here to here. And so we know, now Mary's nine months pregnant, but for the most part in those areas where you walked, you're, you're talking about even in a caravan, 10 miles a day, 20 if you're in a fast-moving group, 50 or 100 if you're in a boat, depending upon wind. See what I'm saying? And there's not, you're not <coughs> hiding from pirates. You're not worried about robbers on the road. You're just not worried about those things because Romans had these stations. And I'll tell you what, you broke the law and you got caught, they crucified it. So it's an amazing time, and the gospel spreads. I mean, look at these times we have here. From the time of, so what's first missionary journey? 40, I got to look at my, map, at my thing here now. I got to get back here just a little bit. Forgive me. Okay. So when they begin, when he does the first missionary journey, he's 46 to 48. By the third missionary journey, which concludes in 57, Right? So 10 years, within one decade, they have planted about 20 churches. And they're thriving, and they're growing and expanding. One of the things I'm going to mention here is Paul has a concept which we are now, con we are now copying today, and it's called hub churches. And so what we find is churches like Ephesus, Corinth, Philippi are hub churches, and they spokes. They have spokes. So out of those hub churches, they're planting and supporting other churches. So yeah, it's moving very quickly. So you can get from here to here, and it's not six months. I mean, you're there in a matter of weeks. If, and you, you can move pretty quickly. Okay. That's a long ways. It is a long ways. But they can do it. They're doing it. Okay, Acts 19. Acts chapter 19. Here we go. So Apollos... Uh, you know, is now parked over here in Corinth. And I find that an interesting side note 
Um, if you look in chapter 18, verse 27, very end couple verses, when Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, that's Greece, the brothers encouraged him, wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. On arriving, it was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ. Okay, so it's interesting to me, though, don't, I, I don't know, this has always nagged at me just a little bit. I find it odd, the, the most strident letter, the most corrective letter with the strongest rebukes are in 1 Corinthians. Galatians 2, also, in Galatians also, he says to them, hey, who's bewitched you, you foolish Galatians? And he says that stuff. But 1 Corinthians is a lengthy letter on a multiple topics that they've gotten wrong. They're goofing it up. And so, but isn't it interesting, Apollos is there, and it says his ministry was blessed, and he was significant, and I'm going, what went sideways? And I wonder if Apollos, remember Apollos didn't, didn't have the full teaching, he only knew the baptism of, of John, of repentance, and it's Priscilla and Aquila who mentor him and teach him, and then they move on, they go on to Ephesus. It's an interesting thing to talk about the value of extended mentorship, you know, of not putting someone in leadership too quickly. Um, I'm grappling with a situation right now in our district, not here locally, but in our district, with a, with a guy who was a deacon. He had a blowout with the pastor, moved about 50 miles away, and now wants to be a deacon in that other church but never reconciled this one back here. So I'm standing in the way of that, <laughs> saying, you have to reconcile that, Matthew 18. You have, to, you have to figure that out. Whether you think you were the injured, you know how this is with forgiveness? So I don't know if any of you have ever been guilty of this that I've been guilty of, where I'm waiting around for the person to apologize to me. <laughs> 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 or when they, when they wake up and smell the coffee yeah. <laughs> and figure out, right? I mean, and it really is granting a forgiveness is a position of strength, not weakness. I mean, when you can come and say, I'm so sorry, I blew it, and um, I hope you forgive me. And I want to make it right. I'm praying for God's grace there. You know, that kind of thing. So it's an interesting kind of thing. I wonder what happened with Apollos, because that church in Corinth goes, goes kind of nuts. It's a real mess. Um, in fact, I'm very surprised during those months that Paul doesn't travel there because of, of the strength of his words that he gives. <coughs> so anyway, but Apollos is here. So Apollos here, Paul is here. Wasn't Corinth really, really a bad place anyway? Well, it, fun to, it was a tough town. Yeah. It was a very, it was, it was Las Vegas. It was the Strip. Because <laughs> Las Vegas is a wonderful town. We have wonderful ministries going on in there. The biggest Lutheran school in the country is in Las Vegas. Very successful. Tremendous. But, but it's like the Strip. You know, I mean, it's everyone coming from all over the place to have a good time and to do some naughty things and what you stays in Corinth, you know, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. So let's look at chapter 19. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior, arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit, right? So they're not even aware of Pentecost, any of that. 
So Paul said, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, um, and they spoke in tongues, or you can interpret that, or other languages. Glossalia is that Greek term. Spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Okay, this is an interesting issue, isn't it? And this particular passage has caused some consternation and division in the church forever. Um, we like to take it on its simplest face and to ask this question. Let me see if I even wrote it in your page here. What is the truest sign of the Holy Spirit? Faith. Right? Faith is the truest sign of the Holy Spirit. I'll tell you an interesting story. It just absolutely broke my heart. There were actually, I can tell you two, and one I know I've told you. So when I was in Seattle, I had uh, had new members, and I had this couple come, and they had little kids, and they were had lived in the area, and I, and they had said, yeah, we were involved. We were actually on staff at a church, kind of a non-denominational, more charismatic Pentecostal type of church north of us. And I said, that's great. And I said, and I, we we visited a little bit, but anyway, at the conclusion of class, I always try to meet with everybody. And just talk to them. And have you been baptized? Are your kids baptized? Is there any questions you have? Do we do things that are weird? You know, um, and do you want to be a member? And if so, what does that look like? So we, I visit with everyone personally, and they're sitting there. They're nervous as a cat. They're just nervous. And I go, because they're wonderful, very biblically knowledgeable, wonderful people, great parents, just dear people. I said they were children's ministers at this other church, and I said, are you guys okay? And they said, well, when are you going to give us the test? I said, well, we don't have tests to join the Lutheran Church. I said, what are you wanting? And they said, well, when are you going to ask us to show that we've been baptized in the Holy Spirit? And I said, well, I think you've already shown that. Your faith is wonderful. You're humble. And it's clear that you're trusting in the promises of God. And they said, no, when are you going to ask us to speak in tongues? And I said, well, we don't do that either, <laughs> unless you can, unless you can like, speak Chinese, and then I'll put you to work somewhere else. I mean, you know, um, but it was funny, because in their previous church, that was the deal. When they wanted to join, and then when they were actually asked to be on staff, um, to be a member of that church, and, to, and the, to say that they were saved, you had to speak in tongues. That was a, just, a, it was the sign. That was the sign for that particular um, denominational and and congregational tradition. And I said, well, how did that go for you? And they said, we lied. We faked it. We had been around it for so many years. We could fake it. And she said, we've lived with this horrible shame for several years. It's why we left. We could not live with the shame. We confessed that. They removed <coughs> us from membership. And, you know, we were fired and, you know, that kind of thing. And so I, you, should, you should be aware of this, that this happens that some people have taken this passage and said, that's the sign. If you don't speak in tongues, you are not baptized in the Holy Spirit. You are not a Christian. Hold your spot here. Go back to Acts 15. Because once again, when we get to a, a challenging passage in Scripture, what do we do? Check Scripture. We let Scripture interpret Scripture, right? So we go, are there other passages that help us understand this passage? There are a bunch I could go to, 
but this one is earlier in the book and fresh. Acts 15, you remember this is the council at Jerusalem, and they're asking the question, can Gentiles, non-Jewish people, believe? And if they are if they don't do if they don't follow all the dietary and circumcision and all of those rules, are they truly believers? Can they be welcomed <coughs> as believers in the Messiah? And so what did what did I put down? Acts fifteen. Eight through eleven. Eight through eleven. Okay. So they're at the council, right? Um okay. Verse okay, verse back it up, five. The believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles, right, the non-Jews, must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. There it is. There's the thing. That's the deal. Verse 6, the apostles and elders met to consider this question. So do they? After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. Right? Cornelius... A Roman centurion, right? And, you know, God uses Peter first, before Paul. Um, from my lips, the message of the gospel believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts, how? By faith. By faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved, just as they are. And the whole assembly goes, excellent. <laughs> right? Uh-huh. Hooray. So that passage, and there are many others, immediately shines light on this. So here's the point. So does it mean that you have to speak in tongues to exhibit the Holy Spirit? Or can it mean that God allowed that exhibition of a certain sign gift to give them assurance and confidence, but that it's not required of all people? You see the difference? They all of a sudden took an isolated anecdotal experience and made it universal for all people when it doesn't say that. Yeah. Well, in our situation here, if God gave one of us the gift of speaking in tongues, who would we need to speak to in a different language than English? In their situation, yes, they had people coming in from all these different provinces. Speaking in tongues would allow them to communicate the gospel. We right. don't really need that particular gift here. Right, right, in order to make the gospel known. That's correct. Um, here's, go ahead, Elaine. Well, That's a good comment, say, thank you. It's kind of related to what Bob's saying, but it's like they've taken what is a spiritual gift and made it a requirement for salvation or mm -hmm. an exhibition, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. is, you know, it's loading the gift beyond <coughs> where it's described. It's intent. <coughs> right. Please, Brad. Is speaking in tongues, is, is it a language? Is, is it, it a, a real thing? Is it an actual language? Okay. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> How many weeks do we have? <laughs> So there's some hints. Paul says, remember 1 Corinthians 13, even if I speak in the language of angels or of men, if I have not love, right? I'm a, a symbol, a clanging God. Bell. So Paul uses that interesting term. What's the language of angels? <clears throat> well, we do know angels do at times speak in ways that we understand because Gabriel comes and tells us stuff. 
right? I mean, Old Testament, New Testament, we have angels that come and tell us. They're messengers of God. But it seems to hint that this angelic heavenly language could be something different. So here's the, here's the schools of thought. So some people believe there are <coughs> heavenly divine languages that are not earthly, but are heavenly. You would not recognize them, nor can you understand them without the aid of an interpreter, right? And that also is a spiritual gift. That the Bible is absolutely clear about, that if you do this publicly in worship, you absolutely must have an interpreter. Paul says it very clearly. Because he says, if you're going around doing this, and the guests are sitting there, and you don't have an interpreter, they're going to think you're nuts, that you're crazy people. So you can't do that, because that doesn't benefit anybody. All it does is uh, cause confusion. So some people believe that God can grant non-human, divine, heavenly type of languages that bless certain people in prayer, in their own worship, and if it's in public settings, it must be accompanied by an interpreter. Okay? That's one school of thought. Another school of thought on the far extreme <laughs> say that those languages only happened in that Pentecostal age and no longer do those unique languages happen. And even the special Pentecostal gift, because the gift at Pentecost is not weird languages nobody understood. The Pentecostal gift is, I can understand the gospel in my language. So they were known languages on Pentecost. Amazing. So some people argue on the farthest side here, none of that exists today. God used it then, is not doing it now. We hold, as most Lutherans, a very typical Lutheran, we hold this mediating position. <laughs> On the one hand, we say, God can absolutely choose to give a gift, a vision, a blessing to a person. God chooses to work. In fact, we say it in our Lutheran catechism. The Holy Spirit works when and where he pleases. That's up to God. And if God chooses to give someone a language, he gives them a language. We don't do it in public worship more for practical reasons than anything else. <laughs> We have never seen the public expression of charismatic gifts go well in the long term. That is the truth. We have never seen it happen because so often the temptation is so great that if you have that gift, you're a better Christian than the poor schlubs who don't have it. Because clearly God likes me better than you. And so it can be very, it's a huge temptation to our fallen nature. It's just a huge temptation. So it's hard. It's just very hard. So we believe, yes, God can do that. When I visited with people who said to me, I have this gift, I say, praise God. God is really, what a blessing. Please use it devotionally and in your prayer life. And allow God to nurture and encourage you. But we don't use this in public worship. And for those reasons of caution. But we do not say that God can't. That's a tough sentence. I, I can't, I, I'm not able to use that sentence. God can't. The only can't is God cannot deny himself. Paul says that. I mean, Scripture says that. Then you have this other one that says, no, those weird things over here don't happen. Okay? <clears throat> and this is still a mediating kind of position. But we do believe the gift of tongues in particular is people with virtually a supernatural ability in languages and being able to communicate the gospel to other people clearly and that God at times gives kind of a special endowment at being able to be heard and understand in the preaching of the gospel. 
So we kind of fall in the middle of that spot saying God can do it, but we don't use it in public worship. We, we encourage people to use that privately. I am a believer that the gift of tongues is God enabling people, because here's to understand the gospel effectively <coughs> in other languages. Here's the interesting thing. We often, we only define typically in other languages like Chinese, right? <coughs> or Swahili. I will tell you this, I taught for four years the evangelism class at Concordia University in Portland to all the church workers. It was never a big class, but it was about 10 or 12. And I told them, my premise of that class was, for you to share the word of God and the message of Christ, you have to learn to speak a new language. In other words, the language into our culture today, the message of the gospel requires learning a new language. And that doesn't mean Chinese or French or something like that. It means people cannot hear you talking about the truths of God in our current culture in the manner which we have traditionally said. So, so for example, I'll give it the simplest of all, of all examples. To sing the Te Deum Laudamus to young people who have never, they have no idea, we praise you, O God, is what that means. We used to sing it in Latin. And then we sang it in English, and it may, didn't make much sense then either to many people. It's just such a traditional, so formal. I think it's awesome. I love it. Dates back to about 800 AD. It's awesome. But it's unintelligible to people. Yeah, go ahead, Jack. Well, this may be a stupid question, but where does the Tower of Babel fit into all that? It's very early. You know, it's very... Way before this. Yeah, Noah and then Tower of Babel. Yeah, the Tower of Babel is the next major event in human history that of salvation history that's a big hot mess. <laughs> you know, it's... Yeah, so, is, I mean, is that like tongues, or is that just... Well, what we believe, God confuses their language. I mean, God confused their language is the theme of that one. Because they were replacing themselves and the works of their own hands for God. They were saying, we, we don't need God anymore. We can attain to God. And so God confused that language, which I would say, if we believe it, Completely literally, which I do, but I can, I can live with a person who says, well, that's metaphoric in the sense that our sin has completely confused our ability to understand and do the will of God. And so it just made a mess of everything. So anyway, but yeah, that's way back. And we're right at the end. If you want to see some, if you want an example of speaking in tongues, go to a cattle auction. <laughs> Hopefully, the guy next to you can interpret for you, and you may not know what that guy. Yeah. yeah. Oh, just listen to the auctioneer, and if the guy next to you understands it, you're good. Well, I'm not kidding. If you could be a fly on a wall in a group of teenagers, uh, yeah. You know, I mean, if you can go to a dance club, if you want to go to, a, you know, go into the back of a of a Mexican restaurant, and and I mean, and it's I'm not saying bad or evil or judgmental things. We all have a certain language. I mean, even here, I mean, in our, Luth in our Lutheran tradition, every tribe has certain language. So, so for instance, Kirk Triplett, pastor of faith, and when Jim came on, when Jim came on seven years ago, and he went back for his interview for ordination, I, we coached him for months and months because Jim would say things like a Baptist or say things like um, a non-denominational a, a church. And it's not that it's wrong or evil. I just said, dude, if you go back to St. Louis and you say that, 
they will kick you out. Okay, <laughs> you you just I mean I was being I'm being hyperbolic, but Kirk, we're doing the same thing now because he grew up in Calvary Chapel, so he he just has a certain turn of phrase, and I go. This is often my comment through with, with working with Jim and working with, with uh, and even Aaron to a degree, because he didn't grow up in our tradition. Every once in a while, I have to say to him, we wouldn't quite say it that way. <laughs> we would say it this way. It doesn't may, mean that we're perfect and all those things. It's just kind of the language of our tribe, um, because all of our things are, it's just Jesus all the time, just Jesus, all grace. Only scripture, all the time. The important thing is we're right. <laughs> Please erase that from the recording. <laughs> all right, let's pray. Let's say the blessing. The Lord bless us and keep us. The Lord make his face shine upon us and be gracious unto us. The Lord lift up his countenance upon us and give us peace. Amen. Hey everyone, don't forget, Trivia Night is February 8th. Doors open at 6.30 p.m. You can host a table for $150, or you can come solo or with a small group, and it'll be $20 a person. Dinner is provided. Also, on Monday, February 10th at 6.30 p.m., we are hosting our second Red Letter Challenge follow-up event on forgiveness. And lastly, as we head into the season of Lent, if you are interested in helping to host or volunteer to help serve during our soup suppers that are uh, right before each Lent service, you can contact Christina Parker. Mm -hmm.